Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of Chasing Squirrels podcast. On this episode, I have the pleasure of talking with Debbie Donsky. Debbie, I got to know first from following some of her Twitter posts within my professional learning network. She is a part of my board, and I always make it kind of a, a center spot in my pursuit of learning on Twitter to try and get connected with some of the instructors that are in my board but that I don't regularly have contact with. The board that I work in is quite large, so you know, being able to connect in real life with all of my learning network would be impossible without using something like Twitter. I also got to know her from reading her posts on her blog, and I was struck by... As best as I can describe it, the honesty in her writing, where I felt like she was finding a real sweet spot between looking at life and looking at education and looking at the hopeful changes that could be made in education if we just stay with the conversation long enough. And in her reaching out with her words, I felt a certain trust coming from her that not only was there expectation to engage in conversation based on her post, but also that she would sort of wait there for you until you kind of got it. The conversation tonight with Debbie really ranges from her origin story to looking at some of her mentors that helped her along in her career. And throughout the conversation, I was brought back to that exact same point that I realized in reading her blogs and looking at her tweets that she's the real deal. And when when I get to spend time with someone that can help me to understand some of the places that I have yet to even encounter, it feels like I'm on a bit of an adventure. I really do believe you're going to enjoy this conversation. And thank you for spending time with me. All right, and thank you for listening to Chasing Squirrels. I am very happy to speak today with Debbie Donsky. Debbie, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I am very well, thank you. Before we get into the deep, could you throw down just a little bit about what you're doing in education, what you're connected with in education? That'd be fantastic. Sure. Currently, I'm working in uh, the curriculum department in the York Region Board, and I have two main portfolios, which include the learning design and development team, which is really cool and something that I think most educators don't have the opportunity to do, um, which is working with multimedia folks. So there are people on my team who are graphic designers, web designers, uh, multimedia experts, videographers, animation, and we produce... uh, all of the learning materials for staff in um, in our board. We also work with the communications department, developing tools for communication out of the board. And uh, it's a really cool creative department that I get to work with. And there's me and one other teacher as well, who is an instructional design lead. So that's really cool. And then the other portfolio is the arts, um, which is also a creative department. So I'm very happy with my role. And aside from that, I do a lot of work in terms of supporting the board improvement plans, school improvement plans, and um, and I have become more active lately in terms of the equity department in our board as well. Outside of the board, um, I guess I've, I've been in education for almost 25 years formally, and um, I work for the Ontario Principals Council, teaching courses, writing courses, and uh, leading the PQP course in our board as well. That's phenomenal. I, I think this is a, that's that is exactly why I love to ask the guests to frame a little bit of their origin story. Mm. I I had my my finger on one small piece of that and built my sort of I guess built my approach, built all my curiosities around a very small piece, and now I find that my sketch note in front of me is only going to scratch the surface. So this is maybe part one of our conversation. <laughs> no commitment yet, but that's a, that's a phenomenal portfolio. One of the things I like, I like to ask on the front end is a little bit of 
the origin story. You you, you gave me a, a taste of it, but let's say before the the portfolio, the portfolios that you that you listed, mm-hmm. how did how did education find you, or did you find it, as far as working in education? Well, it's funny. Um, I have this neighbor that I grew up next to as a child, and apparently they moved in when I was four years old. And I went up to her as a four-year-old and said, hi, my name's Debbie Donsky. When I grow up, I'm going to be a teacher, get married, and be a mummy. So for me, being a teacher was something I always knew. It wasn't, it was my path. It was not an easy path to get there, but I never strayed from it, even though it was very hard. Um, It took me three years to get into the Faculty of Ed. It took me three years to get a permanent job, which, given the current circumstances, doesn't seem like a long time, but back then it was a long time. And... um, and in terms of administration, because I'm a principal as well, I, you know, I did not go into education thinking I'm going to be a principal. Um, I'm always driven by work with kids. So the role I have now is challenging in that way because I'm not having a direct impact on kids. It's, it's more about indirect and influence. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, with the sketch notes that I do, I've found opportunity to be invited to schools to work with kids occasionally, and that's the highlight for me. Um, but yeah, it's always been something that I knew I was to do. So I taught, I actually taught in the former North York board and the TDSB, worked at the ministry for a couple years, and then came to York Region as a vice principal, and that was about 13 years ago. I love the connections. You're making connections for me, but I love the connection between, I guess, between doing access to creative resources and doing um, working with individuals that that have high impact within the school board. So the team that you listed and the resources that you're producing, mm-hmm. and at the same time, keeping in the perspective the connection with the kids. Mm-hmm. And I have spoken with other individuals that are sort of moving through their career path. And one of the challenges that they've identified as far as, let's say, working for curriculum or working for ministry or even um, moving through the administrative path to become a principal is their their concern, I guess, about losing connection to the kids. And I, I love I love to hear those conversations because sometimes the... Sometimes that conversation is framed around um, that it's easy somehow to move into those different leadership positions and lose track of the students. I hear for you that it's very important. With with the sketch notes, with the sketch notes, I think that's a great, I guess, tether or sort of like a, a bungee to sort of bring you back to the classroom. Um, what else is important about making that connection for you with the students? What is it that you see as the as the energy, as in, you know, you bring the sketch notes, what are you still gaining from having that direct connection with the kids? Well, first, let me just clarify that, you know, I know a lot of people who really care about kids, and for sure, Jen and Roy, and who I work with, are, are two of those people who have left the classroom but have not left the connection with kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I The woman who convinced me to become a principal, she was my principal in my last second last school that I worked in in the Toronto board Mm -hmm. and she said to me who you are as a teacher is who you are as a principal and it was something that really stuck with me and um, I never lost connection to kids as a school administrator so what ended up happening was I would be working with the the children who had the most struggle who had the most need Um, just yesterday I went out with a couple of teachers from my last school for breakfast and we were talking about one of the kids who we had worked with. And um, that afternoon I ran into his mother and I live in Toronto and they live in Unionville. And so Mm -hmm. the fact that I would run into her on the day that I mentioned her son, and this is a boy who struggled so much in school and he's finishing second year with high nineties and he's so successful. So I don't lose connection Um, when it's important. Like after the fact, there are still kids who reach out to me. who are finishing high school and they were my students in elementary school. I even have connection to kids who I taught 30 years ago or 25 years ago. They're in their 30s. So um, I think that you make the connections you want to have. In terms of the sketch notes, 
I went to one school in our board, and the teacher, um, Jeff Ruggero, you should interview him, he's awesome. Um, he, um, actually it's Ruggero, I think is how you say he's it. A, he's, is he a teacher librarian? Yes, yes. I, I follow him on Twitter. Yeah. I, I, I like I like the stuff he's putting up. Yeah, yeah. for sure. That could really, be a conversation. Yeah, really cool guy. Um, so he invited me out and set up a session in each of the three blocks. You know, elementary schools in our board have 300-minute blocks typically. And I worked with different groups of kids from grades three to eight. And it was amazing because the first session was all the kids who were in the uh, student support center. And the teacher was just blown away. She said, "These are some of these kids never put pen to paper, and I cannot believe what they're producing. And... Um, then there was another group of kids and, and a couple of the girls were like, are you coming every Friday? So like in this short span of a hundred minutes, you make connection. Mm-hmm. It's so easy to do that um, for me anyway. And it just fills me up. It's exactly what you said. It gives me an energy that I cannot get just working with adults. Um, but, but I do also find my, my kids are 13 and 16 and sometimes I'll be out with my kids and I'll just like... I'll just look at kids or I'll talk to kids and my daughter Rachel's like mom you're bordering on creepy um, <laughs> because I really I, I crave being around children mm-hmm. and when I have limited access to children other than my own um, it, it's challenging for me wow um, you've a whole bunch of different ways I want to go I'm going to stick I'm going to stick just for a second with a, a bit of your origin story mm-hmm. the the people that have, the people that have that have helped you to become the educator that you are, and I like going to this place, especially like Debbie. I'm going to tell you, I, I I'll throw, I, I got to give you the a, the kudos compliment. I don't even know how to frame it. Um, the pieces that you write, the pieces that you write, and the connections and the honesty that you write with, I have no. <laughs> it's apparent to me reading it at a distance how you reach out it's just flat out and i'm going to get to some of your 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 pieces in a bit if if you'll let me but it's no wonder it's no wonder to me that you exist in a space of connectivity with current and former students the i don't think you can process and share in the way that you do in your writing pieces without having that that ability to connect authentically and whether it's you kind of mentioned you do it easily there's also the element of um, learning the the tools of that as well the communication tools and and learning to be the educator and I love the fact you threw down that at four years old you're gonna be a teacher you know like it was hardwired into your DNA and then the challenge of becoming the teacher sets in so Mm -hmm. you have the the idea and then you sort of get get the skill set on top of it I'm curious about people in your life, whether they were professors or educators that modeled any of that connectivity for you. So I'm not trying to, not trying to pull away any of your, um, your skill set, but is there anyone that comes to mind oh, when yeah. you think back like, yeah, that person rocked me. Yeah. Um, I mean, wow. Well, I guess the first one would be, <laughs> I had a great teacher in grade two named Miss Taylor who saw me, you know, I was, I was always a chubby kid, and I think sometimes people don't connect with chubby kids the same way they do kids who would be traditionally beautiful. And she connected with me, and I remember show and tell that I was the one kid who never brought anything in. I would just tell stories. I would tell them about the dreams I had the night before. And Mm -hmm. she saw me, and uh, I would say after that, my grade four teacher, he was just hilarious. His name was Mr. Trichuk. and I had just wonderful teachers through my schooling. Um, I had one teacher, everyone would joke, um, in grade nine, who was my English teacher, Mr. Armstrong, who would have been the first gay man I fell in love with. And um, <laughs> he also, he just saw a sparkle in me that um, I always had trouble seeing it in myself. And um, my teachers helped me to see it. And at, I remember I went to a junior high school in Toronto and they had um, uh, my grade nine graduation dance. Almost every dance was dedicated to me and Mr. Armstrong. <laughs> There's so many pictures of me <laughs> dancing with him. And 
And yeah, so he, he had a huge impact on me. And then in high school, I mean, I had some really good teachers, but I wouldn't say anyone that had that kind of profound impact in university. Um, I, my supervisor for my doctoral program was uh, Professor Tara Goldstein, and she still works at Boise. And she was someone who stood out to me as someone who not only knew her content, but knew the craft. She made an effort to connect part-time students. It's a really isolating experience when you're working at that level and you're not a full-time student, mm -hmm. mostly because everyone that you started with finishes years before you. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was just, she is a phenomenal teacher and I'm still in touch with her. And then in terms of my career, I mean, oh my goodness, um, Lillian Blakey, she's a former consultant for the North York Board. She's an, she was an arts consultant, but was instrumental in leading me to understand how you integrate equity into everything you do. Mm -hmm. um, She's retired now, but oh my goodness. The principal I mentioned who told me to become a principal is Mira Hati Ngadi. And she was also a leader in equity in the North York board. And working with her changed the trajectory of my career completely. And she unfortunately passed two years ago, far too young. Um, and uh, I mean, there were so many, oh, so many people. I would also say my, I worked at the ministry for a couple of years and my, senior manager there uh, was Ron St. Louis and he also passed the same year as Mira. It was not a good year for me. Um, and I would say those those three people for me within my career, but then within our board, and I've heard these names mentioned, um, Ruth Lambert was my first superintendent and she's retired. But oh my goodness, I still call her in moments of need. Mm -hmm. um, Denise Belchez was my coach when I became a new principal and she supported my career totally. Um, Sharon List, also retired superintendent, was incredibly supportive. Dan Wu was, was my superintendent as well. Kathy Witherow and I, like we're trying to write an article now together. Um, she's a great mentor. And then um, uh, Matt Champion is a retired principal. He was my first principal as a vice principal. There's so many people. I could just keep going on and on. But right now I would say my greatest, I would say Jen and Royan in the department um, teach me so much. And, and my very good friend Nada Aude who is one of the coordinators in the curriculum department too. And then um, Janine Franklin, who is also a coordinator. So it's mostly, uh, I would say, the teachers that I connect with in the department. And I think that's because so much of what the administrative role in curriculum is, is um, it's very administrative, not particularly creative. And I'm drawn, and it's not that they aren't creative people, it's just their roles are so administrative. And I'm drawn to the creativity that our coordinators and consultants bring to the department. I got to say, you have a phenomenal memory. A phenomenal memory. You, you track back to grade two. Yeah. I, I, as soon as you said that, I was like, oh, what were my teacher's names in grade two? And I have, I have images. Yeah. I have, I, I think, I, I know where I was. I'm not sure if I can remember names. I oh, that's could tell you, yeah, everyone from grade one up, I could tell you who I had as teachers. And there were way more than I listed, but those are the ones I would say that had the most profound impact on me. I love what you said about um, about your teacher seeing you. Mm -hmm. And and you, you identified the sparkle, but I, I want to focus just for a second on the being seen, <laughs> um, because that's that strikes me as the the turning point. What they see mm -hmm. is 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 the conversation after that but the turning point is being seen if if i sort of run the tape forward to now how do you take that tool and bring it back to your sort of professional relationships now or your you know with the students let's say that that concept of being seen is so powerful how do you honor that in your sort of day-to-day -day now well, 
I think, I mean, I could talk about in schools probably in a more effective way. Okay. But, you know, as a school principal, every morning, every night, I'm in the driveway greeting people, hello, saying goodbye. I go out at recess and I look for the kids who are alone. And at my last school, we had this little team of kids who were sort of just a little bit on the outside and, and they would come walk around with me and we would find kids who were alone and sometimes they wouldn't be alone but sometimes they don't. And so we had this funny group of kids who were from, I would say grade one to grade eight, who would just hang out at recess and look for kids who needed support and friendship. It wasn't anything formal, it was very organic. Um, I would also say that, so there's the actual physical seeing of someone who's maybe alone, but I think it's also the idea that when people are in struggle, that you have to see beyond it. So. You know, I talk about the parent who comes into the office and is screaming at you. And so mm -hmm. many administrators and teachers, and I certainly did this as a teacher and administrator when I was new to it, you take it personally. And it's hard not to when they're pointing their finger at you and saying, you, 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 you did this to my child. Mm -hmm. um, but recognizing in that and seeing the pain that the parent has and perhaps a history of trauma in schooling and lack of trust and peeling all of that back and seeing the fact that they're there because they love their child and nothing is more important to them than caring for their child and advocating for their child. I wrote actually a blog about it, about shaming helicopter parents and I actually can't stand that terminology mm -hmm. because for the parents who need to be there to advocate because the school's not doing a good enough job, we should not be calling them helicopter parents. And for the parents who are what we would typically call helicopter parents, we need to unpack that a little bit. You know, either way, the term shames parents and loses connection to the school, and ultimately the child suffers. Um, and I would also say with my staff that, you know, I think that some principals go into schools and they want to be punitive. You know, they see a teacher who's struggling, and they want to catch them in something. And I think. I think it was Becky Green, who's also an incredible leader in our system. Mm -hmm. she, she was doing this training years ago, walkthrough training, and said that the walkthrough training is about a treasure hunt and not a witch hunt. And I look at teachers in the same way, that when I do their evaluations, when I work with them in their classrooms, where are the treasures? So I don't mean this in a condescending way, but you know, you have to know who your class is. And I mm -hmm. need to teach the teachers as if they were my children in my classroom. And I mean that in the most respectful way, mm -hmm. you know, that we have empathy for children, but not always for adults. And we need to find that. And I think that's all of that idea of being seen, you know, seeing people for their essence instead of their actions. And when people are seen in that way, their actions shift. You, yeah, you have a wonderful, you mentioned your, your, your writing, your, your blog, and I, I have a little a chunk, one chunk that I grabbed, um, standing with the child. Now it's completely de decontextualized. I just, it just jumped out at me mm -hmm. and just below it, I scribbled in, in their space, in their moment, in their emotion. And that makes entire sense to me as I listen to your philosophy of the educator that's at the heart of it whether your current portfolio is principal or <coughs> excuse me or in class or parent i'm i'm getting this from you that standing with the child is part of the core mm -hmm. absolutely part of the core can i shift over to your writing just a little bit sure um i struggle in my posts Sometimes because I find that when something when I see something in education that piques my interest I shift immediately to my family experiences okay. It's and sometimes it it causes me to lose a little bit sight of what the thing was in education <laughs> That I was thinking about in the first place, you know, you start going down memory lane and it's funny because I did not until I started blogging about being a teacher and a daddy and um you know, a husband, so to speak, I, I didn't consider myself nostalgic. I, I actually am the guy that, you know, I can kind of, I don't revisit the photos. I don't sort of pull out the, the, the old pieces from my first dates or the movie tickets or the concert stubs. But all of a sudden I found a space where I really enjoyed the nostalgia. 
And when I started to read your pieces, I felt as if you do too. Mm -hmm. And that inclusion of whole self is, it strikes me that it might be very important to you. I don't want to impose, but this is, this is my observation of reading your pieces. Um, from members of your family to educational observations to interactions with the community to some really, really just like heart-connecting moments that you write about. And digital dualism is that thing that's kind of creeping up in my mind about connecting the dots between what we post and who we are and making sure that there's continuity there. How do you... How do you are are you aware of the power of your writing when you're doing that? Like are you are well, you in I can tell you there are times when I'm writing and as I said my daughter's bedroom's on the main floor and my desk is right beside her bedroom. She'll be in her room doing work and I'll be sobbing at my oh. desk as I write. There are times when like I wrote one about my grandmother recently and I was just it wasn't just as I wrote it, it was as I read it. it takes me about five reads before the tears stop when wow. I write. And it's funny because people, I don't know what you're going to read back to me, but sometimes when people read back or quote me when they post or read back to me, I'm like, did I write that? So I mm -hmm. honestly, I go to another space and it comes straight from the heart and soul. And I don't, it's not very cognitive. I don't always remember what I've written. I like, I, uh, someone said to me, um, it might've been, oh, I do remember a teacher Miss Collins, grade 10 uh, drama teacher. <laughs> and the thing that she drilled in, I think I remember her because she was Miss Collins and then she was Miss Glass. Yeah. And then I think she was Miss Smith. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember the story. It would be fascinating to go back and try and find that one. Yeah, but she, she had three last names. Um, and she had said she always recommended right from the heart. Mm -hmm. She said first draft right from the heart. Get it out. Get it out in its writhing sort of scary, angry, whatever version hits the page, get it out. Because for her position on writing is that you can only get, you can only get to the refinement of it once you get the raw ore out. Mm -hmm. And I think I, I completely understand where you're coming from. Um, to exist in that space, though, can be pretty um, daunting. It can be overwhelming. And if you say five reads before the tears stop, mm -hmm. it comes out in your writing. It's, <laughs> it's, it's there that there, that this isn't, there isn't pretense here. This is a direct feed. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to throw down specific quotes only because there can be that, that, um, that element of surprise. And I feel a little bit better about not grabbing too many quotes. Um, cause I, I don't want to, um, I, <laughs> I don't want to cause tears. I, I don't want to, I would, I want to stay on the, the little bit of the lighter side, but there was, there is one thing, one thing that I'll throw down and it, it struck me as part, you get to know, you know, getting to know teachers and your colleagues and you get a little bit of a, a little bit of a flavor of what their, what their kind of lens is and what their, their thing is and what they're sort of um, kind of fighting for on behalf of the students. Mm -hmm. And Part of one of your pieces was talking about the casual, humorous defense mechanism that some children were throw down of being, quote unquote, I'm okay. And it struck me as a really powerful reflection because I, like you have said, strive to make those authentic connections where a response like I'm okay is good, but it doesn't cut it. Like I, I want, I want to get behind that. I want to be there with a student around that. And back to that standing with the child quote that I grabbed from your thing, being in their space, being in their moment and being able to fully appreciate their emotional state. Mm -hmm. And just below the I'm okay, I put, you know, pretense, question mark, defense, question mark, and offense, question mark. When a child says to you, it could be a colleague too, but when a child or a student says, I'm okay, where does that send you in your thinking, especially if you sort of, you're working to make that real connection? 
Well, it's funny. My daughter said to me the other day, you know, mommy, whenever you ask me if I'm okay, <laughs> and I say yes, you then look at me, and she shows me this look where I sort of look out of the corner of my eye and squint a little bit. Yep, like, yep. are you sure you're okay? Um, so I don't always accept a first response as a final response. Mm-hmm. Because I think that in that idea of being seen, I can see it. I, this Actually, this child I mentioned earlier, I ran into his mom. Um, he was a child who had um, Asperger's, among other things. And... Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about when he was about to go into anxiety, what it looked like. And he had a team that we worked with that were outside of the school board. And one of the people was this amazing occupational therapist. And so we sat with the team that supported him. And we talked about what we see when this boy starts to move into that phase. And the people that worked with him every single day listed a couple of things. And then I kept going. And I said, you know, I I see his skin pallor change. I see bags develop under his eyes. I see the color of his eyes change. I see his movements change, how he holds himself changes. You know, like I just, I see things that um, I think I realize as I get older that not everybody else sees. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's hard for me to even describe. When that woman asked me to specifically name it, she said, oh my goodness, you should have been an occupational therapist. I'm still not 100% sure what they do, um, though I've worked with them for many years. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's just this ability to observe in in really deep detail. So I can see when someone's not holding themselves right, you know, or, you know, just subtleties around body language. You know, they say that... um, I think they say that something like 20% of our communication is verbal, but that then the nonverbal and the paraverbal, so the tone and then the body, is 80% of communication. And, you know, I think also working in communities where languages were spoken at home were predominantly not English, I've learned mm-hmm. to communicate with people without verbal language. And um, people that I'm with, I remember once a, a couple of students were in the office and they were speaking Tamil and I responded back and they're like, how, how did you just understand what we said? And I have no idea how. I said, are you guys talking about this? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just, I think there's the odd English word that gets thrown in, but then you read how people are talking and you know. So I think that it's that, it's that I don't, I don't pry but I want them to know I'm there and whatever they have to say is fine. And being in that non-judgmental space and then developing a reputation for that, I would say. Like, because I've had people in the department say, you know, someone told me that you were a safe person to talk to. Mm-hmm. And they will just come in my office and close the door. And, and I am, because I, you know, I think going back to what the question you asked, that as a child, I craved this. Not in a, like, you know, I mean, I'm a middle child and I actually have a talk that I'm developing about this, but, you know, (laughs) it is in that way, but it was also that I felt that I had this internal world that people on the outside couldn't see and that I was not always, I didn't know how to let it out. And so when somebody allowed me to, they loved me more, you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, and so I want to give that to the people around me. I want them to have that space where they can be true to themselves without judgment uh, it, yeah and what you just said that sort of the the love the love me the love me more element mm-hmm. i think is also um base need in our kids mm-hmm. and i think they always they always start there from the point of view that what it is, whatever it is they're, they're they can share is of value and it's golden and it's cool and it's funny and it's intriguing and it's distracting and sometimes if we're not there with them in that moment we miss it so to be able to honor that um it's the natural state i think that a kid expects to be loved more when they share they expect that that's going to be a positive um kind of reach out and being there for that moment is, is is so important. But I think also, I think that the kids learn that, that often it's not, and that's what shuts us down. You know, like I've shared this part of myself, somebody made fun of me or somebody mocked me or somebody judged me, and then mm-hmm. slowly we develop an armor that doesn't allow us to, to be our true selves. And as mm-hmm. adults, I mean, it's even worse. The, you have a, a, a quick, 
mention, and it was in one of your pieces, I think it was in one of your pieces around equity, and it was the the idea of being, I, I wrote it as the gift of discomfort as a teacher, and recognizing in moments that you might not know how to help a student or how to work through a problem or even what the next right thing is to say. Um, you've said that you're a, a safe space and from my connection to you, I couldn't agree more. I, I couldn't agree more. I can, I can see and feel how that would be a part of connecting with you. That challenge of being, um, sensing our own discomfort. How powerful is that to you in, let's say, you know, working with your colleagues or working with students as far as measuring? It's too simple to sort of measure it to, in some ways to say measuring our bias. But how about that self-awareness that you might not have, you might not actually have the thing that you need to work through what's in front of you? How do you work through that moment? I mean, there's, I mean, I, I think back actually to my very first year of teaching. And yeah, that's I was, always a good one. Yeah. Talk about discomfort. Yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> yeah. I was teaching a grade one class and there was this boy, I don't remember his last name, but his first name was Michael and I could picture him like, he's probably like 35 now, but oh my goodness, he was so intelligent. And I remember we were doing this lesson. This is before the curriculum existed. That's how far back we're going. So, um, we were talking about dinosaurs, which, you know, in grade one, you always did dinosaurs, probably in grade yep. two and three and four also. But so we were talking about it and I said something about an archaeologist and he corrected me. He said, it's a paleontologist. <laughs> the kid was six years old. And there was another time when we were talking about animals and he said mountain lions. And I said, there's no lions in Canada. He said, yes, there are. There are mountain lions. And and, I, and there was no internet either, right? So like I had to go down to the library and look these things up. Yep. And, um, and I just, I guess, he just used to make me laugh. Like I grew up in a family, honestly, I'm one of five kids and my, my siblings are so intelligent. Um, I was always the dumb one in the family and, or felt that way. And, um, and so I was used to being outsmarted by people around me and having to find a way to navigate it and having I can't even say having humility, I think, because that presupposes that you actually have some intelligence and you're mm -hmm. humble about it. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it was more this idea of like self-deprecation gets me out of any situation. Um, like I know that I suck. So I anyway, so um, I think that when the kids outsmart me, even when they're six years old, I was able to say, wow, like, thanks for that instead of getting defensive. And I think that when you're in a space of defensiveness and protecting your own self-worth, you're in the wrong space as an educator, that you have to always be in that space of, I did not know that. Thank you for mm -hmm. telling me that. And, you know, in terms of equity, and this is something I'm struggling with lately, um, you know, the idea that, you know, I, I couldn't have entered into education without becoming aware of the inequities that existed within that space. So as a first-year teacher, I was taking, it was actually a third-year teacher, I was taking the P, uh, AQ course for Special Education Part 1. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the projects was to do you know, some research and interview somebody in your board. And my research project was, why are all the black boys in the special ed room? Mm. And I interviewed this special ed consultant in the North York board and she was very defensive about it. She said, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, I'm 23 years old and I can see what's going on in there. Like, are you, are you kidding me? <laughs> um, so I've, I just think you can't, if you can't see it, then you're choosing not to see it. Mm -hmm. And so as a white woman, it is incumbent upon me to disrupt those spaces, you know, and we talk about a few years back, our board was really keen on this whole idea of cultural proficiency. And one of the messages that I liked about that was that we are never culturally proficient, that it is an, always a, a trajectory forward to learn more and learn deeper. And now we talk about culturally responsive and, uh, and relevant pedagogy or mm -hmm. leadership. And that's the same idea that, you know, you have to listen and you have to learn, but that it's, it's your responsibility. So, 
in our department, we've been taking a pretty intense equity journey. And um, me, along with uh, Pam Agua and Meta Aude, have been really leading the work. And, um, you know, it comes to a point. So I've been doing work on white privilege to help people understand and see it. And they want more and they want more. And at a certain point, it's like, okay, open up Google, do some research. I think it's really important for each educator to own their own path of learning around issues of equity and social justice, privilege, and um, systemic oppression. I think it's it, we must all become aware or we're not serving the students in our system. I've had moments, just a bunch of things you sort of threw at me there that are just rattling around. First, I love the being tutored by my students where they throw down and I was like my and there's something about you, you sort of fall into the, the the teacher trap and want to challenge just a little too quickly I have to say about myself I listen too fast mm-hmm. and getting to that that slow uh getting to that slow listening where you soak in so much more in, in the bigger picture that it keeps you just physically if you're actually telling yourself shut up Clough shut up listen more listen more <laughs> and then stay in the moment that's a good kind of mantra but the other part is just the net effect of listening slower means that you get more information mm-hmm. and I've always been kind of a banter teacher as in sort of playing with words and um, it was always some an area of interest for me that you know, writing and the power of words and the history of words and um, choice of words and what that means, what that can mean as far as self-empowerment and what can that can mean as far as affecting change. I've always believed in that quite wholeheartedly, but I realized in my early years is that I was using it tactically as, a, as, a, as an offense as opposed to a, a, a learning tool because I was quick to sort of play in those games at a, in a way to, I had a buddy, I did go back, I had a buddy, John, John McKinnon, when I was in elementary school. And what I really loved about John was that, so my strongest memory of John was that somehow in grade eight, I beat him. Do you remember the, um, is it participation mm-hmm. Canada? Yes. You used to get like the bronze, silver. And, Maybe you or, did. That was you my remember, nightmare. You, you remember it was absolutely um but i remember in grade eight i beat him in the 100 meter dash now this guy was so we were good friends and we we ran together we did cross country and all that kind of stuff there's no way i should have beat him he was sort of like going to cross country and beating like he was sort of like the officer guy Mm -hmm. but we ran together so much at some point whether he i won at the time, I didn't question why I won. Afterwards, I wondered if he let me. Mm-hmm. And when I thought about the power of that and what that did for me in my sort of just sense of self and positivity, I, I didn't care. I, ha- I had that moment where I, and I never went back and I was like, hey, John, did you let me? He totally <laughs> threw the, the run or whatever. Because as I'm looking over at him, do you remember the uh, the Olympics with um, the Canadian runner and the... the uh, um, the two runners, and I'm dropping his name right now, our, our guy from Markham running against Hussein Bolt. And in the Olympics, they looked at each other and they actually had a smiling moment. I was like, hey, that was like being John. And then somehow <laughs> I, I beat him. So I bring this forward and I think to myself, the listening too fast. Um, in the past, I would have been John just, you know, running down the competition. And I think there is something in the first couple of years where you're looking you're looking for wins mm-hmm. like you're looking to sort of be uh, in control of your craft and i and i love that idea of moving slower and and listening more and honoring what is actually brought to you by the student because i think i think it benefits everyone mm-hmm. so much more um can we talk about being creative for a little bit sure and then we're we're sort of we're almost there okay. um I feel like I'm going to end up sending you my little sort of notey sketch notey thing. So you get to see some of my scribbles. Um, But I have you, you, you create art. 
<laughs> nice and simple. That's the t-shirt. I, that's why I actually, maybe I'll make some t-shirts like that. You create art. And you have, um, I'm, I'm curious. I was talking with someone last night about the creative process. And uh, this individual I was talking to, he's a storyteller. Um, he he does uh, audio, like he does some podcasting, but he also um, will do some videography and he, he loves to put together those narratives in multimedia. And we got on that, on the concept is within the creative process, what part, <coughs> excuse me, what part is most fragile? What part for for him was most fragile in that where it, it, it could go either way. And for him, it was all about that last moment just before finishing. He was talking about a thesis that he completely threw out two days before because it, it was just at that moment he decided this isn't right and he rewrote it. So I'm curious in your creative process, I've seen some of your sketch notes. I've seen... I've seen your arts that you've posted on your blog. It, it comes out of you. I always believe that it's, it's, there's some compulsion to get those, the creative out. What part of it is most fragile though? Where do you tend most? Wow. Um, I, I can't even say that there's a struggle. <laughs> That's awesome. I think it's more about time. It's that I, for years, I didn't do my art. I think the last painting I made was when I was on mat leave with my daughter, who's now like almost 17 years old. Mm -hmm. And um, life just got so busy that I stopped doing it and I forgot about it almost. And it reminds me, I'm gonna go all literary on you, but there's this Rambeau poem that I read and it was like, and I think Shel Silverstein has a similar one where it's, you know, the idea that as children we see certain things and then it just disappears. It's like fairy dust. And I think that as I've moved into my adulthood, as particularly as a, as a new parent, um, that I just forgot. And I was doing my doctoral work then. I mean, I started it before I was a mother and I finished it when I had two kids, three jobs later, two different houses later. Like, it took me years. And I think that coming into the curriculum department, even though I work in creative departments, because it's so important to be aligned to the board message, mm -hmm. th there isn't as much room for creativity, which I said, like I said with my principal colleagues in the department, I don't know how they feel about it. Um, but for me, it's just, it's a less creative space than a school. So as a school principal, there was so much opportunity to be creative. And I think my writing really started there in my weekly memos that um, I mentioned Matt Champion. He used to write these, mem I would do the memo at the school and he would write a little note and he would always talk about his kids. And I loved that personal connection and so I sort of morphed it as my own and one of the teachers, actually one of them that I went out with yesterday for breakfast at my last school said to me, you know, your memos are like blogs, you should really write a blog. And I was like, oh, I don't have time for that. And I found that teachers who I left or who left my schools would sometimes email me and say, can you send me your writing, Deb? Um, I need to read one of your pieces. I'm feeling mm. like I need it. I'm craving it. So coming into curriculum, I started first drawing, doing my drawing and painting again, and then the writing. And I think it's just, again, it's like my desire to have voice that I, I don't feel that I have a lot of voice in my role because I... I guess I don't know who's listening. Whereas in a school, you know who's listening. It's like, I think you said on one of your podcasts, oh, of the two people listening. And I wrote Jen, I was like, I was listening. <laughs> you know, it, you know, like you don't know when you, when you sort of put it out there and you see numbers, like some of my blogs have had like over 2000 readers, which is so cool for me. But some of them, which are like sometimes my most heartfelt ones, it's like, oh, 70 people read. And then I was listening to Royan's talk and he said you know if I reach that one person and so I've really tried to learn from that what he mm -hmm. said in your podcast mm -hmm. and so I guess ultimately the hardest part for me is when I put it out there what's the response because the creation of it is just it's like everything in my mind goes quiet and it's just this it's, I used to meditate before I did my art and now wow. I don't I, it's like just putting the pen to paper I'm in a different state and I don't hear anything. I don't see anything. I just am with that piece. 
And, um, and I would say it's the exact same with my writing, that I don't even know what's going on around me because I, it's like there's a bubble around me. But I put it out there, and there's so many people who have been so kind, you know, just like you can see when I post things, you know, the comments, and um, especially when I put on Twitter or Facebook and there's like a space for response or Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, just, I guess, the people who believe in the stuff I'm doing and appreciate it have been the impetus for me to keep going. But I don't struggle in the actual creativity process at all. That's phenomenal. What do you have moments that rem- so do you what type of a moment would remind you to create? So um, it's funny. I listened to Elizabeth Gilbert has a book called Big Magic, and she has Love a, it. yeah Love her it. creativity podcast, and that was something for me that was really helpful. Um, and there was one where she talked about this one writer who, a poet who, you know, she would, the poem would come to her. Like she talks about the idea of genius being something that comes to you, but it's not something in you. Mm -hmm. And so this poet would like feel the poem coming at her and she'd run so she could write it down and she would literally like pull it back words for word by word by word. So there are times when I get these ideas and if I, I I sometimes will put it in my phone or I'll just send a note to myself or like a voice note, something so that I remember. Um, But then sometimes when I go back to it, I don't remember what it was. So it's, yeah. So these, it just sort of comes to me like a spark, you know? I just, um, I was just working through that in a, in another piece talking about um, the post-it notes by my bedside Mm -hmm. and those I think I remember Gilbert talking about that, something about there was not only the sense that a poem was coming or that cre- the creative was coming. Um, I mean, to preface it, you know, what my takeaway from Gilbert's talk was that idea that when when the creative or when the magic, I guess, mm-hmm. comes looking for you, um, it, it will spend some time with you and it'll spend some time trying to get you to notice, but it'll move on. Right. But it'll come back again, but that moment will move on. Yeah. And I think I remember that that poet you were talking about, and it, it's, it was not only that there was some whisper that the creative or the poem was coming, but it was also, didn't the poet also have to like run home to mm-hmm. the desk? It yes. felt like the poem was chasing her yeah. back yeah. to her desk. Yeah, 100%. I love that. I yeah. love that image mm-hmm. that, that it chases us like that. Because it really, it, it smacks of... Because it, 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 what it basically means is that you could be hunted by creativity at any time. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing is, Brene Brown is one of the people I write about often, but she talks about, she has this quote that says, um, untapped creativity is not benign, that it will metastasize yeah. within us if not expressed, <laughs> you know? And what does that do to a person when you have all these ideas and you have no space for expression? You know? That that rattles me. I just yeah. and the language, the language. Okay. I get it. I think there's a. I think the language is intentional. Mm-hmm. It takes me to a slightly darker place in creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's also a powerful reminder of not to ignore it mm-hmm. and to check in on yourself more often. You could go down the wellness, or you could just go down the creative. Mm-hmm. Ooh. I got one more question for you. Okay. <laughs> we good? Yeah. This has been a phenomenal conversation, by the way. Thanks. Um, the whole chasing squirrels thing <laughs> <laughs> comes from... I know the story. I heard it. Yeah. So grabbing the squirrel off yeah. the tree, right? <laughs> and a few people have put that too. They're like, I've never seen that before. And a few people have... Um, sort of said to themselves, yeah, I've played that exact same game, Clough, with a squirrel. You sort of circle one way, it circles the other way. It's that spiraling um, that spiraling competition and then you walk away and the thing runs down and just kind of goes off on its own business. But I, I, I exist in... I like, the, I like the metaphor. I like the story. It sort of reminds me of some of the things that we, that we chase in education or the, the mini projects or the moments that can sometimes be elusive yet so reasonable like my dog grabbed that thing off the tree i'm like there's got to be some tactic there that i could do it too and in the same way my dog didn't know what to do i wouldn't know what i would do if if i ever managed to to grab a squirrel off a tree right mm-hmm. so 
but for where you are right now, what is a, what is a, a, a moment that you're chasing? Could be a project, could be an activity, could be an idea. What's, what's that thing that's kind of like pulling you into a pursuit mode right now? Well, that's a funny question. Um, I think that I've, I've gone back and forth in my career of moments like that where I'm striving and moments where I become sort of, I don't want to say complacent because it's not complacency, it's, it's presence, like just being mm-hmm. present and not striving. So I know that for me, as I said, like, you know, when I was finishing my doctorate and I was so happy at my school as a vice principal and I did not want to become a principal, my, my principal would joke around saying, well, I'll retire and you could become principal and I'll be retired on contract. I'll come back as your vice principal and we'll just work <laughs> together for the rest of our lives. And that would have been really magical. Um, but I didn't want to leave him. And I just, I, I came across this expression from Buddha, which was be where you are. And it wasn't just, it was in a course and somebody in my course said that she put it as a mantra on her board in her room because she kept thinking back to, oh, when I was with this board and the people she was currently working with would get really irritated with her that she would um, keep talking about the old times, you know. And then um, I had this obsession with journals and stationery. So I was in the indigo sales section because I try to curb my spending and I came across this journal with quotes in it. And I flipped through it, and there was the quote. Like, I just opened it up to the page, be where you are. And I thought, okay, Uh I need to stop. I need to stop. And the minute I stop striving is the moment that it comes to me. So um, I would say the same thing happened to me, you know, with curriculum. Our board didn't have a way for principals to actually work in curriculum. It had to be promoted from within the department. Mm -hmm. And then with the curriculum review a number of years ago, it opened up. So principals and vice principals have the opportunity to complete a form called their career planning summary. And we can indicate where our goals are going forward. And I clicked off curriculum and... And one of the consultants who I used to work with all the time said, you know, Debbie, you really have to come here. Just click it off on your form. And I said, I'm not applying for anything. I said, if Denise Belchez calls me up and says, Deb, we want you in curriculum, I'll go. But other than that, I'm so happy. I just loved my last school. I did not want to leave. I felt we were on a really great trajectory. Mm -hmm. Then it happened, right? I didn't get a call from Denise, but from Dan, who was my superintendent, said, Deb, we want you to go to curriculum. And I was like, okay. Um, and I didn't know what that meant. And I would say that, you know, there's another role that I have pursued for a number of years and it has eluded me. And so I think when I get in those situations, I ask myself, is it a message that I'm supposed to be receiving that this is not my path? Um, or is it my path? I mentioned that it took me a lot of years to become a teacher, even though I knew at four years of age that I was supposed to be doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't always know, um, what is it? And I, I feel that I'm, I'm at the point now where I just need to go back to that, be where you are. And at the same time, I mentioned I work for um, the Ontario Principals Council. I'm writing a course for them. I'm teaching a course. I'm doing a workshop in another board on equity. Um, I got invited, which I'm really nervous for, um, to do an Ignite talk at the Connect conference. Brian Aspinall invited me. You're going to be awesome. So I've already written it, and that's where I was talking about being seen and um, you know that whole idea of empathy for the learner and for the people we work with and serve. Um, but I, you know, so it seems like there's, there's like eight things I'm working on right now that are outside of my regular work that are just mm-hmm. coming to me. So I had made the decision. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be, you know, searching for that squirrel. Uh, I'm just going to be where I am and be content. And then things come to me. So it's a funny pattern that I've seen in my years in education that the struggle is, Sometimes you shouldn't be, you shouldn't actually be struggling mm-hmm. when it comes to your own growth. That there's discomfort for sure, but I don't think struggle. I think that things will happen as they're meant to happen. And you know, the last rejection I received was just it was hard on me, and so I had to come back to the space of be where I am. It's awesome. It reminds me in talking with um, Jill Stambolich and she was mentioning her year of saying yes. And it's, Mm -hmm. I mean, we've, we've, that is, that has come across in different blog posts. It's sort of like that idea of being open 
is is not a I'm going to do everything. It's mm-hmm. a more being open. Is it becomes noticing, mm-hmm. and um, she speaks quite honestly about it. she's got a couple she's got some blog posts where she writes about it but that idea that just by saying yes doesn't necessarily mean that the stuff's going to work out right but the opportunity for reflection and learning also mm-hmm. exists there even in some of the stuff that doesn't turn out but remaining positive means that you notice the stuff around you yeah yeah and just like like the the idea that we were discussing around the magic right yeah that it comes tapping on your shoulder and if it's there then you respond to it i love the moments where i'm tackled by it i have to be honest <laughs> those moments just of you know it's and it's not even necessarily i'm not talking about because i wasn't paying attention but like the moment is so sort of like um pillowy and and aggressive and it just jumps on you and you're like I gotta do this thing I gotta do this thing and you sort of like sit up right you go grab the tool and you start to make something I love that and then I also love the discommunication is in it sort of motivated me and I still don't know exactly where it's going to turn out but mm-hmm. I have to grab that red marker right now <laughs> and I have to or something or the scissors or yeah like uh, the duct tape and I'm going to make something with duct tape no, no joke. My colleague laughs all the time. She says, I look into the room and I see you sort of working on, you know, working with a kid on the English course and then doing some math. And then you'll go and start folding paper into a square or you water the plant or you sort of stare out the window for a little bit. And then you go back to teaching again. It's like you get, it's, it might be slightly disruptive, but that's my process. I sort of blend it. Debbie, where can people find you? Um, I'm on Twitter, so it's at Debbie Donsky, and my blog is on Medium, but my goal this summer is to create my own um, online identity through uh, my own website, Mm -hmm. so that'll eventually be coming, but it'll be the same, it'll be my name. Um, Yeah, that's about it. Um, I love this. (laughs) This was awesome. This was a really great conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm humbled that you shared so much of yourself with uh with our talk this morning it was great it's the only way i know how to do it and i i will expect even more the next time we connect like i said i'm i i'm also looking forward to the moment where uh you know we can kind of do the handshake or the hug and meet in real life i'm looking forward to that moment as well can i just say chris like your podcast it just fascinates me you're like a chameleon you kind of morph to each person that you interview and you match who they are in the way you deliver it and question. So the strength of your podcast is your skill as an interviewer. So I just want to say that. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. I, I, I think, um, I'm just going to say thank you. I know. (laughs) Little blush, little blush. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Um, so I look forward to the next time that you and I connect. Cool. Absolutely. In real life, coffee's on me. (laughs) <laughs> and I wish you the, the best of the weekend. And once again, thank you for talking with me. My pleasure. Chasing Squirrels podcast can be found on iTunes and Podbean. If you want to reach out to me and have a conversation, I can be found on Twitter at Chris J. Clough. I also have a blog on Blogspot of the same name, Chris J. Clough. And some of my postings can be found on Medium, which I think I have under the exact same name. I really appreciate the time that you spent with the podcast this evening. If you ever want to be on the podcast, please reach out to me. I'd be more than happy to talk with you. And I am truly, truly grateful for you sharing your time with me. Take care.